Welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello and welcome back to Me, Me, You, You, the podcast created to share empathy with our world simply by tuning in. Now, Me, Me, You, You tries to travel the world to find the stories that allow you, our audience, to step into the shoes of someone else or another experience that perhaps you yourself could never have gone through or could never imagine without hearing it firsthand. Today's story is no different. This is truly a story of tenacity and inspiration and certainly in parts, depths of community and commitment to overcoming a reality that very quickly confronted a group of people and particularly the protagonist of the story. Before we kick off, I just want to tell my guest that this is a story shared anonymously and in confidentiality. And I want to make sure that you're happy here today sharing uh, amongst that anonymity. Oh yes, definitely. Thanks, Mimi. Wonderful. Well, let's start at the very beginning because your story began, I'm imagining, on a very normal day at home where the least of your expectations was that your life was going to make a shift entirely in one afternoon. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, it was actually in, in a way beyond a normal day. It had been a really wonderful day. You know, you have those days of the dark halcyon. They're just glorious and wonderful. And you're planning a beautiful evening and life is good, you know, like really good. Nothing could go wrong. So, yeah, and I suppose, Mimi, I mean, to give it some context also, and I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to be talking to you, is that um, the person involved and and, and myself, there are two of us involved in this, we'd only met each other two years previously after coming out of different lives. Um, And, yeah, we had had and have a wonderful love story, and, you know, it was – it was the, just the time of our lives. We were enjoying each other, enjoying life. Um, so that's the context of the people involved. The other one is that, I suppose, to, to start the story, is, is it's the way we live. And uh, we have an apartment on the side of a very, very steep hill, practically a cliff. And we have a side terrace, and we have this lovely garden, flat terrace and this beautiful garden going down the side of the mountain. So that's really the context. And I suppose, shall I start the story now? Yeah, so so absolutely. We have a love story. We have two people who are deeply in love and have come out of different areas of life and are having a beautiful day in this home you described to us on the side of a mountain. So one could ask, you know, what could possibly go wrong to ruin such a day on the edge of a beautiful mountain. But tell us, what happened? Okay, so it, it was one of those days. Um, we were 
going to sort of be going out onto the terrace to have a drink and watch the sunset. And, um, you know, when I tell this, I, I need to say that I don't think I've ever been happier in my life. And it's it's an amazing thing just to be that happy or that content. Um, and uh, it was a lovely day. But, but suddenly a, a gust of wind so massive came up and we have an outdoor umbrella, a very large one. And it lifted up this umbrella and there's a windy thing that winds the umbrella up and down and it fell down the side of the mountain into the bushes going down the side of the mountain. And that was fine. We got the umbrella up and um, then my partner said, well, I'm going to just go down and get the ratchet. And it's quite steep. And because there's a terrace, there's these retaining walls, which I'm sure people know. And he's been over a couple of times to pick up the odd cushion that fell over. But he's going to go down, so he climbs and turns back and holds onto the railing on, on the balcony, well, sort of the terrace, and does what he's normally going to do. He holds on, and he goes down very carefully, putting his feet into the grooves. But literally on the second foot, he was putting his foot back, and he lost his grip. Now, when I say it's a steep mountain, if you're going to fall, there's no flat thing to fall onto. Uh, and I was actually standing right there, and he lost his grip. And when I say this happened in two seconds, he literally he went through the air on his back, uh, which was bad enough. And, it, well, it's a split second. But he landed on something that we really didn't know was there. And there had obviously been building plans at some stage to build out on this terrace. So there was a big concrete-filled pipe with what they call a rebar, which is a long, curly bar, about 40 centimetres long, sticking straight up out of the concrete. And he fell onto that. But he fell straight onto the top of the rod. Think of a, you know, God, I was going to say a candy cane. That sounds so frivolous. But think of a, a rusty bar like a candy cane. It's rid, It's got ridges all the way up and down. And that went, he fell straight on it, on his back. And I watched as he fell screaming, but I watched this bar come up. It went through his back and come up through his stomach. Mm. And it stuck out, I don't know, 15, 20 centimetres. And, you know, just in that moment, it's so unbelievable because I just, we, you just look and he just shut, I'm dying. And I just, um, you know, everything just stops. And I just said, you can't die on me. Just... And I just said to him, hold on, because it was that sudden realization. And he realized at the same time, it was like he, he lifted his arm. Now, if he had not done this, he would have slid off the mountain. The pole would have ripped through his stomach. He pulled his arm up. I don't know. I still don't know how he had the presence of mind to do this. And he grabbed the pole that was now coming out through his stomach with his arms and he held on, literally for dear life. He realized. I just said to him, 
stay there. I, my phone had fallen over as I was sort of screaming uh, down as he'd fallen. And uh, he's screaming, don't go, I'm dying. Just, just come down here, come and hold me. I love you, just don't go. I said, I'm getting help. And I knew I had to run up the stairs. Now we live a long way down, three flights of stairs outside. And I, I don't know what takes over because it's never happened to me before, but I, I don't know, I just kind of flew up these stairs, actually shouting at the sky, you are not letting him go, he's not leaving me. And as I ran out the gate, a young couple was walking past and I'm shouting all the time to Clive, stay there, I'm getting help. A young couple was walking past with a dog and behind them another young man with a dog. And, and they said, can we help? I said, please, it's terrible, come. I said, what's happened? I said, my partner's fallen down the mountain. And they literally, the one, the girl said, hold the dog. She said, we're both, <laughs> we're both advanced first aiders. So they were there. They were literally at my gate when I walked out. And then the other guy said, you're going to need help. He has my dog. So there I'm holding two dogs at this stage. <laughs> These young people ran down the stairs. You know, it was um, like, um, yeah, I mean, I did explain as it angels, but that just sounds so airy-fairy. They kind of ran down. It's like they knew what to do. They jumped over this equally dangerous slope now that we realized. I was trying to say to them, this is what happened. They saw, obviously, they could see the pole through. And the weirdest thing with this is that when you talk about this, people think, well, there was blood everywhere. And it wasn't. It was really um, quite strange because there was just fat coming out. I've, I've never seen fat coming out the body. There was no blood anywhere. Anyway, I'll take a deep breath because they went... They literally jumped over. They were obviously very young and fit. The, the guy behind them came and realized he'd have to hold up parallel so he didn't slide down the mountain. Because if he did, this pull would rip through his stomach and side. End of story. An amazing young man. I think adrenaline took over with these three. I call them kids. But they were just fantastic. The girl immediately got Clive's head and realized that his head had missed another one of these poles by about two centimeters. I mean, literally. And she just looked and she went, oh my gosh. And she crawled around and she held his head and cradled him. The Her boyfriend just looked at the pole and he also helped my partner. He helped him. And he was on the phone as he's doing this and he's saying, mom, please get all the help you can. This is the address. Thanks. Don't ask questions. Just get everyone here. So with that, there's the four of us, and um, they're holding him. They're assessing the situation. They realize all they have to do is keep him really still, keep him awake, because he, he was just screaming in pain, as you can imagine. So actually, it was kind of allow him to scream, allow him to talk. So he didn't he didn't succumb. The, and, you know, you find out all these things afterwards about, you know, you don't want them to fall into a coma or to faint or to pass out in any in any way. But, you know, bizarrely, Mimi, they knew all this. Um, you know, I, nothing could have happened without these three people.
So that's the first part of the story. And, you know, I'm obviously standing here thinking the love of my life is, is going and he's talking to me and he's just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And, you know, it's, it, oh, oh, I can hardly talk. It's, it's that sort of thing. But, you know, when you realize that back in time it was so short and I just looked at this person and I just thought, you know, I, I cannot even think about what you're feeling. So, and of course, he's so aware of what's happened. The caveat also to the story is that he only has one kidney. And we did find out later, but we didn't know at the time that it had missed his other kidney by about half a centimeter. Um, So that was, and all we could think of, and he was saying, my kidney, my kidney, and he told these guys. So that that's that's sort of the beginning of the story, and this is like half past six on a really gorgeous sort of summer evening. And um, our apartment looks over at this whole village. If you look up from the village, you can see the house that we live in quite clearly. Um, and the first thing I heard was sirens coming down the road, and it was the beginning of the most extraordinary uh, bunch of people. Like I could stand on the balcony and see everybody coming down the road towards us. You had to come up the hill, obviously, to help. So the, the first part is, is about sort of serendipity, which is also, it's a strange word to use, but it's a fine. It's about kind of, I couldn't believe that I'd gone up there and these three people happened to be there because if they hadn't, you know, um, he would have gone. They'd be what? very lucky. What, what, what a I, I say what a beginning to a story but uh, you know to, to use your words there that was you know only the beginning but as you said to have that moment when you realize that these people knew what to do because not only were there people at the top of your stairs but they were people that had some level of training and ability to to take that situation on can you remember it clearly is it is it a blur I mean you've just told it quite clearly does does it feel like a memory that's very easy for you to recall or did the sort of panic and stress take over for a lot of that time? Yeah, it was interesting, Mimi, because um, something else happened, which was I was I was just sort of screaming inside about he can't go, he's not leaving me, kind of like. But it was all very clear when I realized later, there are obviously parts that aren't clear about what happened after that, but that that clearness and these people, I mean, I know their faces, we've seen them since, and all that was super clear. I remember the words, um, and it it wasn't fuzzy. I, it, it, it was like, you know, you feel you kick into something that has to make things happen. So there was stuff I couldn't control, and I'd heard the phone call about the help coming, and I could see the road, and I could see the first responders coming, the paramedics and people like that. Um, And I got on the phone earlier that day, um, well, literally about an hour before that, we'd seen a friend of ours who's a dear friend, who's a trained doctor but also a psychiatrist, and he was a very, very good friend of my partner's. So I literally said, you'll never guess what happened. And, I mean, he was there in uh, three minutes. I don't know how he got just there fast so that he could start talking to my partner. 
And that was so important. So I remember thinking, I've got to get him here because he's going to help me, but he's going to help my partner. And my best friend is also our doctor. So in a way, it's about sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm just blessed. I had the right people in my life at that time. And I phoned her immediately. Um, and I know she had a whole lot of other stuff on, which only found out afterwards. But literally, she ran out the house and was probably here about another five minutes. So she was his doctor as well. And that was fantastic. But what they did is they put me in between them and we were on the edge of the terrace looking over. We could look down at his face, at his face. And they both just held me. Um, I think for my doctor, it was especially worrying because she she couldn't say anything to me because quite honestly, when she assessed the situation um, and she was the first doctor on the scene, when she assessed the situation, she she really didn't know what to say to me. She couldn't say to me, he's going to be okay, because she just really didn't know. So in a way, I felt, you know, the burden on her was quite great because she is my closest friend, and, and she had to make sure that I was okay without telling me it might not be okay. But I do remember it all clearly until all the people started to arrive. Um, but you talk about what you do, and I think it's an adrenaline thing, you know, we've looked at it afterwards, that you actually have to, to take notice. You have to talk. You have to see who's around. You have to be aware. And the one thing I knew is the last thing that could happen was, was me falling apart. I couldldn't fall apart because mm -hmm. also my partner was talking up to me all the time saying, babes, are you there? Darling, are you there? Can you hear me? Are you there? So for all the time that we were there, it was, I'm here. I love you. I'm here. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And the one thing I also thought, because at one stage I just actually wanted to go and lie down and cry. I thought, well, you can't, you just can't do that. It doesn't help anything around here. So I think there's a practicality and you're trying really, really, really hard to sort of, you know, to kind of stifle the emotions because you actually just want to scream, you know. So at this at this point, you're on your balcony, your partner's talking up to you. So he's obviously still conscious. And I mean, that that alone is something to get your head around as a listener, that this gentleman is, you know, alive and conscious with a pole through his body being held in a horizontal position by a group of strangers, which is increasing by the minute as more emergency services and doctors arrive and you are watching down on this. You mentioned that very quickly the the house, the garden, the, the mountain fell sort of fell up or filled up with people, people trying to help. So what happened next? You're standing looking, the the emergency services are arriving. What on earth do you do next when there is a man on a pole on the side of a mountain? Yeah, it, it's so in, it's one of those things because people just started arriving. I have to tell you that I reckon within the first 20 minutes. Now, we live in a village which is outside of a town, which you might think, oh, well, we don't have the resources. But so firstly, these, these wonderful young people are walking past. Then my friend, the doctor, and my friend, the psychiatrist, arrive. Uh, seven minutes later, our local respondents who are trained in sort of um, first aid, medical, not quite paramedic, but they know what to do in emergencies, um, 
a team of them arrived. There was four of them and a couple of young trainees. So we really got six. Then the full-on paramedics from the main city arrived um, with a doctor, with a, with a trauma doctor. There was about four people there. Then a, the fire and rescue people, ambulances, um, fire engines arrived, two fire and rescues. I suppose within the next hour, there were two of those. There was about another eight or nine people. Then we had contacted, my doctor friend had contacted the, the hospital in the city with the best trauma unit and found a surgeon and said, look, we're going to have someone and this is what's happened. So that hospital made sure that their trauma ambulance came as well. Okay, so with that, um, there's just, you know what it was also, you had to note everyone that's coming because I was just relaying to him all the time, okay, the paramedics are here. Okay, there's a doctor here. And a lot of these people, Mimi, were climbing over. You know, we had fallen over. They were climbing over. And, you know, you're just thinking to yourself, who else is, you know, I hope no one gets hurt. There were mm. others. Was, and we have local security companies, you know, similar to internationally things like ADT. But um, we needed help to keep Clive stable, but one person couldn't hold him because the steep is literally nearly a 90-degree angle and the plants are slipping. You're not going to be able to, there were no big trees to hold on to. It's all just shrub. So at one stage, three security guys who should have been patrolling the area were down there with the original chap who had arrived right at the beginning with his dog. Uh, oh, by the way, the dogs ran away, so we had to go and find them as well oh uh, and get them inside. And these guys, they stopped what they were doing as well, the security guys. They came, these big guys, over the same terrace, down the slope, and there were five of them, and I'm telling you now, for at least three hours, changing positions and holding each other because they had to keep him flat and still because – the still thing is important because you could, if the, if that bar moved, um, it would it could take out something. So at this stage, there's no blood, and they can't see. And his vital signs are fine, but they they can't move him in case it it does move or takes out a kidney or whatever. So it's keeping him still and then making decisions. So by the time the second doctor arrived, and yeah, and 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 you say like you've got to take note of what's happening because I have to tell him what's happening, as does my doctor and my psychiatrist friend. And we're all saying to him all the time, so-and-so's here, these people are here. People were down there, they were talking to him. But I think the most extraordinary thing that happened was you're talking about, there were in the end 27 extra people there. You're talking about, we had two fire engines and ambulances, I've said all that. All these people having to work together and it was, for me, really extraordinary because there was no panic. There was no raised voices. There was absolute kind of respect for each other and, and definitely for my partner. I mean, the care and respect, you know, they didn't treat him like an idiot because, remember, they, they had to keep him awake. So they're aware that he can hear what they're saying. And then at some stage, they're having to say to him in a couple of cases, 
look, the, it's going to be okay, but should something else happen, we need you to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking, God, please stop telling him or don't tell him that something else is going to happen or we need to tell him that he's going to be okay. But they were really respectful. They were amazing with each other. I found out later that when talks about it and eventually could, he just talked about the thing that kept him going was listening to these people all the time, talking to each other. He said there was a bit of humour, there was a, the lovely camaraderie, there was banter, but at no time did anyone do anything that was jarring or harsh. Everyone was holding him. They were talking to him. They were calling him by his name. They were having conversations. They were saying, oh, look, your friends are up there and they've got your wine waiting for when you, you know, out of hospital. And and that's what he remembers. He just remembers people talking to him all the time. Um, so, yeah, it, it was the thing, the, the thing that, that's key about this also is this went on for four and a half hours. Wow. So, it wasn't a, it wasn't over and done within an hour because the next part of the story is they didn't know how to rescue him. We couldn't, they couldn't, it was a long thing to work out how to get him off the mountain. Um, wow. So I, yeah. I want to give you a, a second to, to, draw, to draw breath and, and just reflect on, as you touched on there, the, the human spirit, but also just the community, you know, that you have a group of 27 people rallying around uh, your partner, you know, bantering, making jokes. Um, and of course, at the same time, critically working out how to help this man and get him off the side of a mountain without him passing out or, or creating chaos. And as you said, you know, at no point is anybody arguing. So was there a leader, you know, was one of these lead uh, surgeons or, or trauma doctors making the decisions? Were you even aware of that? Because I'm assuming at some point somebody has to make the decision as to what the course of action is, or, or perhaps not. What do you do? You remember how they came to their decisions? You know, sort of, Mimi. You know, it was very interesting because the first responder guy was was in a way the least trained. Not he was the guy who came from our local resources, but a marvelous guy who started the coordination. But as people with more and more experience came along. He, he would defer. So obviously medically, we had two trauma doctors who were both over the mountain, both women actually amazingly so, so compassionate. And, you know, they were both, the guys are great, but these were the women, they were holding me and hugging me and telling me it would be okay. And there was such a, there was a lot of physical touch, which I really needed because I was kind of feeling strung out. You know what I mean? Um, so he knew when to defer, they were deferring, and there was a couple of other things. So there were leaders, but there was so much um, connection. There was a lot of what shall we do, let's try this, does everyone agree, yes, who's next? There was so much, I just couldn't get over how they um, just coordinated this, because there's the medical prerogative, obviously, with there's the human being, and there's another story there about sort of the drugs that they had to put him on and how to manage his headspace. Um, then there's the the, the um, 
the actual thing, the logistics of he's got a pole through him, which is embedded in concrete. So you can't pull him up off the pole because that would rip, rip its guts out, actually. So you've got to get the pole off him. And so then as they're working it out and then they, you've got guys going up and down and looking how to get a rope and a pulley system to get him up to the top. The other extraordinary thing that happened is that it's about sometimes about who you know, but I suddenly thought, hang on a second, I've got a very dear friend and her and her boyfriend are mountain rescue people in, in the area that we live in. Phoned her, they were prepared to drop everything. She decided to stay home with their child. And her partner was there, I don't know, in about 10 minutes with all his mountain rescue gear. So there's another thing that happens. He comes in because the fire and rescue people from the main city hadn't got to us yet. So he comes in, he's got all his gear, and they were fantastic. So everyone says, okay, so there's our rescue guy. There's our doctor. There's our logistics guy. These are, you know, the people who are just being there for for him and, and everything. There was just, I, I don't know if there was the leader in the end. It was the key people who knew they were, that they were doing. But... And the more and more people who came, there was such a quite a lot of these people who obviously worked together before, but there was just no, there was nothing territorial about this is my gig or not my gig. Um, and you know, I think nearly everybody came down the stairs acknowledged me, which which I find extraordinary. They didn't have to do that. Um, everything that was happening below us, as we're looking over the terrace, they. They're talking to me and to my doctor and friend. Um, and one of the things, you know, so it it seems quite calm and it seemed like, I don't know, an evening of people of talking and working things out. And it was just incredible. I mean, I just always say it was incredible because I just, I, I just don't know how it came together um, on that side. But the other side of it is is my partner who actually lay there. Now, sometimes when I tell the story, I forget that he was just lying there for four hours. It's unbelievable. They realized at the beginning, though, obviously they had to give him um, a drug, but they he had to stay awake. And I think I mentioned this up front. So the next part is really was, you know, in this sort of circumstances, giving him something that totally dulls the pain because he's in absolute pain. And if someone just slightly moved, he would just scream out in pain because a little movement in a person is quite a big movement in the pole that was in him. And uh, then the what the, the, the two drama doctors spoke to my doctor and the psychiatrist, which was interesting, said, okay, we have to go in with ketamine. Um, so I'm sure you know ketamine. Um, it, it's, it's a commonly, tranquilizer, right? Yeah, it's a horse tranquilizer, and it's also a battlefield drug because and it was first used, I think, in Korea or Vietnam, is that it was administered where they just actually, there was no time or, or circumstances which they could use anesthetic. So it's it's that drug. Um, so she did, and what was very interesting, so the, the one doctor who was down there or said to my partner, we're going to give you ketamine now. Um, I'm going to talk to you about it. And, you know, it was so weird. I thought, what is she doing? She said, you're on a beach and you're with your wonderful lady 
and where's your favorite place in the world? And he's trying to talk, you know, where's your favorite place in the world? Oh, that's where you are. And while she's talking to him, he doesn't know, but the, the injection is going into his arm because she has to set him up not to have a so-called bad trip. It has to be kind of like your last thoughts take you through because mm. it's a, a, a trip in a way. Um yeah, and then they realized that they were going to have to give him more and more because it was the only way they could keep him awake and also keep him from not feeling the pain. Um, and eventually um, they would actually talk to the psychiatrist because he's used ketamine in psychiatry um, recently. I think a lot of people are doing it. And they, they were saying we have to administer more. And, you know, unfortunately, my partner's doctor was there and she was saying, I know this patient really well. You can. He's strong. He's et cetera, et cetera. So he had three hours of, of ketamine. My gosh. So as, as, that was, as, yeah. as you're getting past this three hours, is there any point when your partner is, uh, I, I want to say, getting frustrated? I mean, of course, he's he's horizontally on a pole and, and he is in pain that the ketamine's perhaps managing some of that pain. But at any point, did he start to say, you know, can someone hurry up and fix this? Or, or did he really just sort of accept the reality and stay very calm at all times? Maybe he was calm all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sorry, because I'm taking quite a long time. But the next thing is actually, and I think this was when they gave him a lot of ketamine, the one thing they realize they're going to have to cut the rebar off him. And remember, he's sitting flat on it. So first of all, they had to get drills in and drill the concrete, which are quite hot. I mean, I'm telling you, he ended up with a very burnt back. They had to drill that concrete out. And then they had to get a um, uh, what you call, angle grinder to, get the, to cut the bar off. And that, that was the most extraordinary time because they gave him more, but he was so calm and we were saying to him, it's okay, they're getting the bar off now, you're going to be going. And I I don't know how he did it because he would scream out in pain, but he he knew he couldn't move. So that was that was the most extraordinary thing. And then they did eventually, they tried one angle grind and it didn't work. And the grinding of the concrete and getting the cutting the bar took about over an hour. So it's absolutely extraordinary to imagine that that is happening and it's as you said burning his back and and i'm imagining is it now dark because you mentioned it was you know sunset yeah. at the beginning of this story so are they now doing this in the dark yeah totally in the dark they had those big sort of what they call kegel lights you know that you light up outside on the side of the mountain and we found out obviously the day afterwards quite a lot of people in the village were looking up thinking what on earth are those lights doing on the mountain Big, big, shiny lights. Yes, it was very bright because they had to obviously have major. And then, of course, getting – they needed the light also to get him off. And then I suppose it, 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 it just went on. It seems to have gone on for a long time. Eventually, they realized they couldn't use a pulley system and they had to sort of take him down. They had to get a board onto him once they'd got the, the pole out, get him on a board. And then it was literally about 12 very strong people taking him sort of across the side, the bottom of our apartment, and then up the other side. Um, and by that stage, he he was still obviously on ketamine, but talking, and we could I could go, obviously I wasn't allowed in the ambulance, but myself and my psychiatrist friend 
literally followed the ambulance um, to the hospital. And he was aware. He said when he came out of onto the road and saw an ambulance, he said he just thought, oh, thank goodness I'm on my way to hospital. Because he kept on saying, he kept on reminding himself that he was alive. And when he was lying down at the bottom, he'd, he'd, he'd look up and say, I'm still alive, baby. I'm still alive. And I said, you are alive and you're staying alive. And you're kind of going to be alive forever if I have anything to do with it. <laughs> and he, he kept on saying, I'm alive. And every step, you know, like he knew what was happening with the pole and he still can't quite go there even now. He can talk about the whole thing, but I think the pole thing, they put a, they gave him a lot of drugs at that stage because I think that was pretty horrible for him having it, you know, and you know, there's angle grinders, they give off sparks and things. And he could so see all that. He took he could that see out on the mountain. So when they're using these cutters, they they did take the entire pole out of him on the mountain. No, no they couldn't. They had to go to hospital. He went to hospital with a pole in him. Oh, my gosh. So he got to the hospital. He goes straight into emergency, and we wait outside thinking this is going to be a long time. And one of the, the ambulance driver who I'd been chatting to, obviously, back at our house, he just came through and he said to my friend and I, they, they're taking the pole out now. He's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. And he was just a wonderful big bear of a man. And he gave me this most squeeziest hug I've ever had in my life. He said, he's fine. He's going to live. And um, it's, it's, it, it, it's weird to say now that there was just a part of me. I knew he was going to live, you know. But, you know, it was one of those things. We had to get through certain stages. And then extraordinarily, we'd only been there about 10 minutes and this wonderful trauma surgeon walks out into the waiting room and says, come, you can come and see him. And we looked at her as if, like, what, you should follow me. And um, she took us straight into their A&E. They have, like, this triage, like they have on a battlefield, where there aren't theatres and anaesthetics. It's emergencies. You go in there, you get the drug, and the operation is done as you literally are put onto the bed. And she's incredibly respected. So she was waiting for him. She knew what she had to do. She had everything ready. They got him onto that bed and literally gave him the biggest dose of, again, ketamine, and pulled the pearl out. While he was conscious or unconscious? Conscious, conscious yeah. It's and conscious with the drug. Yeah. And he, he can remember this moment of triage or by now has the shot that's in? no. So he can't remember that bit. Okay. But he does, because you don't go into, you're not anesthetized or sedated. It's a different drug. Taken out, she said to him, you're okay. We've got it out. We've got it out. And, of course, she said everything was having to be looked after because he had to go straight into surgery the very next morning, obviously. This was just the, the instant to get the pole out because it's also rusty and everything else. So it's not, you know, you can't leave it in. Um, and he he said he just remembers my friend and I walking in, and we looked at him incredulously, and like, and he goes, "Oh, hi guys! Like, thank God that's over." And I'm thinking, "Oh, can't believe you just no. said that." No. no. And uh, yeah, and he he then, I mean, that's that's the kind of the part of it where. You know, I, at that stage, I, I basically, literally, I fell on the floor in the in the A and E and started crying 
but it was the best cry ever. You know, it was one of those cries of of complete relief. Um, I, I can't even, you know, to, to hear your story, uh, to understand or, or of course, empathise with, with the reality that you had gone through. I mean, absolutely for your partner, this was a, a trauma beyond something that most could handle. But, you know, you're, you're the guest here today and, and I want to really recognise that because for you to have gone through this four and a half hours on the side of a mountain watching this roll out, trying to be the support for him, you know, having 27, 30 people around you in your home, um, suddenly you're in this triage room you know, as you said, sort of 10 or 15 minutes later, and he's saying hello. I, I can't even imagine the sense of relief, but but also perhaps exhaustion at that moment. Yeah, maybe you just, yeah, it was. I was so overwhelmed. I don't think at any stage in my life have I ever felt such a sort of range of emotions from the beginning um, through to then. I mean, it just is extraordinary. And yes, it did take its toll. You know, you do you do feel completely knocked because your your mind has actually really not known what to do with itself. Um, and then there was that strange thing when I knew he was safe and they, this was like half past one in the morning now and we, we had to go home. We were told to go home and he'd be operated on first thing in the morning. So you go home and sadly my friend actually couldn't stay with me. He had to go back home. Um but I just woke up the next morning and thought, and now what? You know, it was like, um, I had this, I don't know, it, it's a bit overwhelming. Except, and I couldn't be in contact with him because they had sedated him then because they wanted him to calm down, obviously, quite a bit before the operation. Um, and I, I just, you know, I suppose the big thing, and it's like often when when you and I talk is that, I literally sat that morning for about three or four hours and I went and got a cup of coffee and there was no one around. I'd started getting messages from people and I thought, I, I don't know what to do. I, I can't I can't believe how grateful I am. And I knew he would live by the stage. He had to live. But um, this sort of angel that had come into my life two years earlier um, had had to go through this, that he had had to go through this. And he didn't want to die, you know. He, he sort of was saying to me, I've just found the life I wanted. This is what I wanted. Um, and we both wanted exactly the life we were having. So it was interesting in the next couple of days, people say, oh, my gosh, this must have made you guys really rethink your lives. And we just said, no, actually. <laughs> it, it made us, it, it reaffirmed that we, that we were living the lives we wanted to live. Um so much I think in our determination that that nothing was going to happen to him um we'd both made big life decisions long before this happened that it worked out in us being together so um no we didn't have to sort of change our lives but the one the one thing that was very interesting after that was the reaction of the people I mean the short story is that Clive went and he had his first stop on that Sunday and it was fine and they realized obviously he had a massive hole in his back. So that was um, the hole that we, it went in. And where it came out, they'd cut him, but the back was a hole that had to sort of heal itself. So his healing was uh, a good three to four months, going to the hospital twice a week, um, 
and going to this wound therapy because this this wound this 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 hole where the pipe had gone through had to heal itself. So you continuously they're putting stuff in there to clean and then so the skin regrows. So he's ended up with a bit of bit of a large bump on his side, but you know, literally he had his last operation eight months later. That was last October. Um and that was the final one to check and because obviously there's like a small hernia and you know for the first six months he wasn't allowed to sort of really do anything very sort of strenuous so but um yeah the consequences are, are, are interesting it's it's made even though we were fiercely determined to live the life we wanted to live our way it i think it made us even more so and um and even more grateful for each other, you know. I'm not saying it takes that to make you realize that you've got someone special, but it certainly did have a major impact, but did not change the way we were going to live our lives, you know what I mean? And has it left you, I, I mean, I, I love that you say, you know, we didn't need to change our lives, but perhaps it was a re reaffirmation. But has it made you more nervous in life? Has it made you worry more about, I don't know, going near the edge of the patio or, or any of these things, you know, do, do you feel fear has, has been left with you after the trauma? Um, I'm going to say no. Uh, you know, yes, I, I probably will never go that near the edge of a mountain. But, I mean, we live there. We haven't moved house. People asked us if we'd move house because what didn't we have bad memories? And actually we didn't. Uh no, it hasn't left us with fear. You know, we talked about it a lot. And my partner, you know, people also asked, shouldn't we both be in therapy? But he started talking about it and asking questions about it very early on. And he was in the hospital for two weeks. And he had a lot of people who knew his story who were coming to chat with him. And talking was, was his therapy. And then that moved into sort of semi-humor. Like, um, you know, if we invite people for lunch, they say, sure, but can we have the chair far away from the edge of the terrace, you know, and things like that. And, you know, so it, it's it's actually fine. It, it's I don't think it's made us more fearful. I'm going to say in a funny way, not that I'm going to go and sort of jump off a bridge and do bungee or anything like that, but it's made us a little bit more... Um, Oh dear, probably careful about our lives and about each other because we don't want the other person to break, you know. One other thing, there's a lot of stories about people, but I want to tell you because I think it's important to what you talk about is that I had so much outpouring, so did Clive, of incredible people and people we didn't know phoning the next day and people asking about him. And in fact, I mean, it was just overwhelming and on that Sunday there were two things that happened is that I was on my own waiting for the outcome of the operation and the guy who is my psychiatrist or our friend who's a psychiatrist sort of said well what are we doing today and I said well we're waiting to hear what's happening he says well you're not just going to sit there and think about it all day he says we are going to do my wedding plans and I said oh really okay he says yep i'm gonna do it because it's gonna be a really fun thing because he was he, he'd also been going into his second marriage and and we'd become great friends and he said we've got a lot of people to seat and we're going to sit here and we're going to cut out little tables and chairs and we're going to write names on them and we're going to plan it and you know we did that for two hours and watching our phones all the time and doing that and i thought 
he didn't tell, he didn't ask me. He just said, that's what we're doing. But before that, I'd gone down to get a coffee and, and a very dear friend of mine phoned and said, well, what can I do? I said, I don't know. I'm just going to get a coffee. Uh, I don't know. Please tell me if there's anything I can do. I said, I promise you I will. And on the way back from coffee, I was driving up the mountain towards our house and I noticed, I said, I'm sure that's her standing by her car looking out over the sea. I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And I drove up to my house and she pulled up behind me. She got out of the car and she said, I'm sorry, you were never going to tell me what you wanted. So I'm coming downstairs with you. And guess what I'm doing? I said, watch it. I'm going to clean your house. Because also the other thing I'd done when all the people were there was I'd made sandwiches and coffee for everybody as well. So apparently, I don't remember doing that, but apparently I had. <laughs> and, um, so she, she just walked down and she gave me a huge hug. I said, I want to help you. She says, I don't want you to help me. Goodbye. She cleaned my kitchen. She made some tea. She just did everything. And she, she didn't even stay, Mimi. She said, and now I'm going because I know you where you're going. And I'd already said to him, my friend was coming to his wedding plans. And now I'm going. And I learned such a big lesson from that because over the years, you know, when you have people in trauma situations or I've often found it with friends of mine who've had cancer, um, instead of saying, what can I do and waiting for them to tell you? It's just this wonderful thing of going in. Just go. Because actually I was so grateful for that. And my friend who we had to do his wedding plan, I was overwhelming. Those are the two big takes out of the nicest things that happened to me the day after. Do you know what I mean? Mm, you know, it's terrible. people, oh, I'd love you to bake me a cake or make me a coffee. You don't say that. No, no, absolutely. I think, you know, our, our instinct, as you said, is to say, well, either I don't know or no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. You know, those, those two terrible words, I'm fine, when, of course, you and the whole world know that you're not. Um, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, I think there's such insight there into friendship and into, again, for the second time in this conversation, talking about leadership, you know, both those friends of yours stepping into a form of leadership in that situation and saying, we think we've got a plan that is good for you in this reality. And obviously you being very grateful for that, probably at the time, but also, you know, in, in hindsight. So I want to, you know, wrap up with I mean, this began as a love story. And, and of course, it ends. It ends as a love story as well. Um, but I want to end with one, one thing that you would like the audience to understand. Of course, there's been many parts of this story. I think there's lessons in resilience and tenacity, trust, community. I mean, so many things to sort of be in awe in, both from you, the, the people that were there, your partner himself and the ordeal he went through. But if there's one thing that you would like people to understand from going through a trauma like this, what would be that one thing? Yeah, I think maybe I think what everything for me was um, in this particular case was community. Um, I have lived in this community for 30 years. I, I sort of had an idea but not really had any idea what this community could do in something like this. This was a major thing for these guys. A lot of these people had never, ever dealt with an impaled guy on the side of the mountain. And they all just came together. I mean, there, 
the community living here, one of the people said to me, one of the chief fire guys said to me, if you had lived in big X, Y, Z, you know, suburb across the mountain, do you know that you might not even have had an ambulance yet? He said, the beauty about living in the village you do is that you live in a community that really works. And the first guy came down the mountain, his mum only had to phone one number and everyone was there. I didn't have to contact any ambulance service, any hospital, nothing. So it wasn't just them doing their job there because they went way beyond their jobs or their roles or anything. There was so much care and kindness and the word that, that we both love, empathy. I mean, people people were understanding not just the position my partner was in or that I was in. There were friends there and there were people who, there was a young trainee who who couldn't believe what he was seeing and he actually had a little bit of a fall apart. They were holding him and, and there was so much kindness, there was so much love, but it was all community. And they all sort of knew each other. Where they didn't, they made connections in order to make, to keep this guy alive. So at the end of the day, these all these people working together kept this one very important person alive. And they kind of knew, you know, people were asking me about our story um, and I was telling them the sort of the basics. And I promise you they were doing it with love. And um, a few months later, we went off to the main little headquarters and they'd got together some of the firefighters, the medics, quite a few. There was about eight, nine people. And, you know, they we wanted to meet them again and say thank you and give a donation and everything. And Clive, and they asked Clive actually on one of the paramedic training videos now to if he could tell his side of the story, which he did much shorter than me in about seven minutes, but so that paramedics and people like that could understand how important the role of the person being saved or looked after was and how the empathy and caring for that person was absolutely key in order to have a successful outcome. So he did that and he did it for them and they were very grateful, but um, still these guys, it is all about community and, you know, if you live in a place where you're not reaching out and people aren't reaching out to you, I feel sad because here I know that if anything happens again, I know who's going to be there and what they're going to do. We live in an incredible community, and and that's all this was about. It was about community. And you talk about leadership, leadership in a lovely deferred way. Lots of people there were being leaders. They would take responsibility for what they had to do, but in a very nice and cooperative way. I mean, it was it's about cooperation as well. Because you mm. could have had 27 people butting heads. Mm. <laughs> but there was none of that. And I think that's my big takeout. And then the aftermath of the community we live in. We can't go anywhere now. And someone will say, oh, are you the guy that fell off the mountain? And how <laughs> are you? I mean, strangers, you know. Um, mm. So, yeah, community. Community. It's, it's the most amazing thing, quite honestly, when it works. It's it's an unbelievable story, and I thank you very much for coming on and reliving it and sharing it with a wider audience. I think your takeaway there at the end around community is such a powerful one. We are, so often I say, you know, we are better when we're together. We are not meant to be alone. And, of course, we are living through a loneliness endemic out there in the world. So many people that are listening in may feel that they can resonate with that aloneness. And I think what your story reminds us, amongst so many things, 
is that power of believing in other people and people coming together for what is the greater good of, of a community, of society as a whole. And I think we can so often get wrapped up in the news, the media. There is so much trauma in the world. There are so many bad things that happen to people, to our children, to our communities. And when you hear a story like this that is, is a lived through story, and not forgetting that I'm sure many of the people that were involved that night had their own traumas to, to overcome, as you said. None of them had helped a man in this situation before. So the impact of that on, on so many people and ultimately resulting in what we can say is a, is a happy ending. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, a love story that began that way has ended that way um, with such resilience and tenacity. So I hope this story, like it did for me, uh, has allowed the listeners to really take perspective and and use their imagination, their empathy for you, for your partner, and for all of the responders and, and people in the community that were there that night to save this man's life as a true example of, of human spirit, of teamwork, of leadership, and of course, kindness. So thank you again for coming today and for sharing your story and, and taking us through what was truly a life-changing example of the human spirit. Thank you, Mimi. And, um, and and thank you for inviting me. It's just something that, you know, one wish one could always name all those people. But I said afterwards, it was an incredible story of 27 people, a community coming out to save a life and they jolly well were going to do it. And they did it, you know. Well, there we go. The perfect, the perfect end to the story to everyone that tuned in and joined us today. Thank you. There is always one final question to my guest, and that is that the show is anonymous, but of course you have the opportunity to reveal your identity should you like to. Um, would you like to remain anonymous in the show? Yes, I would. Thank you, Mimi. I would, yeah. Thank you. To everyone listening, thank you, thank thanks you so much. No, you are more than welcome. I'm thrilled that we managed to get through the story. And I hope that you tune in in the future to hear more of these stories and create more empathy in our world. From everyone here at Mimi, you, you, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi, you, you. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.